Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, between two and a half and three million people have died from COVID-19. That's just what's reported. And we know the toll is so much greater beyond even the more than 128 million people who have been infected by the virus, many with long-lasting and poorly understood repercussions. That's why a year after the WHO declared coronavirus a pandemic, protests demanding global access to vaccines were held around the world. At this point, media could ask how the global economy can recover if only parts of the globe are vaccinated. But what if they went deeper and wondered, if we don't learn from this pandemic that none of us can be healthy unless all of us are healthy, how many chances will we get? We'll talk about global vaccination and what's in the way of it with Peter Maybarduk, Director of Public Citizens' Global Access to Medicines program. Also on the show, there are more congressional hearings for big tech companies coming up about their role in spreading misinformation about COVID, along with, you know, racism and violent insurrection and stuff. We'll see the congressional debate, assuming there is one, play out in the press. What we won't necessarily see is how big tech companies are furiously working, by which I mean spending, behind the scenes to tilt things in their favor. We'll talk about that part with Jane Chung, big tech accountability advocate at Public Citizen and author of a new report on the subject. That's coming up, but first and briefly... In November 2014, as we awaited the ruling of a St. Louis County grand jury about whether to indict Darren Wilson, the police officer who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Counterspin talked with educator and organizer Mariam Kaba, who noted that while indictments matter to many, what protesters and especially prison abolitionists have been trying to say is that the killing of Michael Brown, the killing of George Floyd, and so many others— are nightmares in themselves, period. But they are also just a part of a world of violence brought to bear on black people, from the school-to-prison pipeline to profiling to cash bail to the drug war, none of which will disappear, even if a police officer goes deservedly to jail. Media like trials. They have two sides and a beginning and an end. You can talk about how witnesses look or speak and whether the prosecution or the defense is making its best case. Those are all ways to cover a trial without covering rank injustice, cruelty, murder with impunity. Once it's draped in a legal process, it seems as though it's being handled. What Mobilization for Black Lives and others are trying to say is that when policing itself is rooted in anti-blackness, social control, and containment, when these murders are not aberrations but just the spear end of a broader social injustice, then this cycle of crime and cover-up and assurance that it's all being taken very seriously is not leading us out. And the implication that the problem will be fixed with the replacement of individuals is not merely inadequate, but a disservice to the grievous loss and harm inflicted by every one of these murders and the system that allows them. When media are ready to engage that, 
they will find lots of people ready to talk and many more ready to listen. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The availability of COVID vaccines at corner drugstores here in New York City and elsewhere reports that nursing homes in the U.S. are seeing steep declines in new COVID cases after being prioritized for vaccines and maybe just the arrival of spring. Have many folks hopeful that we're nearing the end of the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. But as ever, we have to ask, who's we exactly? U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez was among those complaining in February that 10 countries had monopolized 75 percent of the world's COVID-19 vaccines. Meanwhile, people in more than 130 countries were yet to receive a single dose. For many people, the pandemic was undeniable evidence of what is always true, that we are interdependent physically as well as societally that while problems can be global, protections are not, and that when profit-making and public health collide, you need to pick a side. What stands in the way of our using that awareness to shape global access to vaccines? Joining us now by phone is Peter May Barduk, Director of Public Citizens' Global Access to Medicines Program. Welcome back to Counterspin, Peter May Barduk. Great to be with you. Well, let's talk about what's possible and compare it with what's happening. You produced research showing how the U.S. could basically get everyone on the planet vaccinated with targeted investment. And obviously doing that now is better than any uh, time other than now. Uh, it, It wasn't a moral appeal, though that's entirely appropriate. It was a plan of how this could actually happen, right? Absolutely. So we think an investment of $25 billion would be sufficient to produce 8 billion doses of mRNA COVID vaccine in a little more than a year's time, which is timely to shorten the pandemic because many people in low middle income countries are potentially going to be waiting until 2024 for a vaccine. And it's actually not entirely clear that we're on track to vaccinate everyone in the world ever, as opposed to just run into a a long-term problem of a boosters with endemic COVID. So we think that there is a need to inject ambition and set up new production lines with a small capital investment. We think about $2 billion to do that. And for the Biden administration to call on drug makers, and other world leaders and say, we can do this. We can actually produce more than we currently have planned to produce. If we share vaccine recipes, if we pool the available facilities, if we put what really is a very modest amount of money in compared to the economic cost of the pandemic. Yeah, $25 billion. I'll just note the 2020 military budget was $721 billion. And then we're talking about something that would pay for itself. And we're not talking about charity, you know. Um, Well, let me just draw you out. What are the global dynamics or relationships in play? We have wealthy countries sitting on vaccines or the recipe for vaccines. And and then that wealthy versus less wealthy countries is also interlaced with a tension between private profit and public health. What's going on there? 
It's true that wealthy countries are sitting both on doses and on recipes. Donations are going to become a very big issue in the United States shortly because we're actually amazingly going to have a surplus of vaccines in the United States at some point over the summer, and there will be a discussion of what to do with those excess doses. And we think they should be equitably allocated to people in low- and middle-income countries and the COVAX uh, initiative. However, it's very important to note that that on its own will not be anywhere near enough to meet the scale of global need. And if we don't ramp up manufacturing quickly with some new investments and some high-level political leadership now, a million more people will die than would otherwise be the case, and trillions of dollars will be lost. So it's critically important. One of the greatest public health private profit tensions in this story is the value of vaccine recipes and vaccine technology. A company like Moderna isn't thinking only about the value of its mRNA vaccine, which is actually an NIH, a a publicly developed vaccine in, in partnership with Moderna, paid for by taxpayers over many years already. But they're thinking about the value of future products. They're thinking that their recipes and their techniques, their production techniques, the specifics of their platform technologies, that's the long-term value plan for the company. And so they don't want to share with the world openly how that is done. But there are solutions to that, uh, including paying the company's appropriate compensation for disclosure of that technology, essentially buying out the know-how. We can afford at this moment in time, collectively, to pay some appropriate amount to companies and investors that are truly making innovation happen. But what we can't afford is commercial secrecy, fragmenting of a supply ecosystem, limiting how far we can scale up vaccine access. And that's what's happening today. I would refer folks to Lee Fong's reporting for The Intercept, where he has Pfizer CFO Frank D'Amelio saying, quote, as this shifts from pandemic to endemic, we think there's an opportunity here for us, close quote. And, you know, the Johnson & Johnson executive VP Joseph Volk is telling investors that they'll, quote, reevaluate the vaccine for pricing that's much more in line with a commercial opportunity when the pandemic is over, close quote. It's important to note that they think they're in charge of saying when the pandemic is over, you know. So, let me say, when we talked last, I think we were talking about Donald Trump. He's a sociopath, straight up saying, you know, to heck with Kovacs, us for us. That's not the tone or the message, certainly, in the new White House. But do you think that in terms of actions, that Biden might still be thinking too small, too domestic? So far, that's a concern. I mean, let me, let me put it a little differently. We do think we need to see some signs of greater ambition from the White House. Yeah. To be clear, I think we and, and a great many people are very grateful to see the turnaround from the White House in dealing with the pandemic in the United States and grateful to see the renewed support for multilateralism and recognizing that the world is in this together. Absolutely. But we need a lot more ambition and upfront investment on the global problem now, recognizing the unique capabilities of the United States government to organize production for the world and to set standards for other world leaders and for drug companies and say, here's how we're going to get this done. If the U.S. government doesn't step into that role, 
we're just going to lose a lot of lives needlessly because there isn't another player to fill that void. And right now there's production happening, but we are letting the companies dictate far too much of it. And there isn't a pooling of resources or scale to get to make up the difference in those billions of doses that are needed to vaccinate everyone. Well, let me just pull you back to the science of it. I think sometimes, and this comes through in the media, it's as though we can make this a political issue. We can enforce a political template onto what is not inherently political. If we wait too long to get vaccines to people, then isn't it true that those vaccines might no longer be effective if the virus mutates? So it's not just immoral. It's not just uneconomic. It's also kind of stupid to wait too long and to enforce a kind of unequal immunity on the globe. We definitely think it's in the interest of everyone living in the United States to vaccinate the world as quickly as possible and take some of the wind out of the sails of the variants of the mutations. If the world is not going to do a good job of getting the pandemic under control, then we'll have a worse problem of a a variant spreading. It'll be something that we all have to worry about quite a bit more in the future. Notably, it's also going to be harder to restart the global economy. Uh, We've got global supply chains. We're going to have parts of the world shut down, communities devastated for the foreseeable future unless we get it under control. So an investment now in order to protect the future seems quite sound to us. We've been speaking with Peter May Barduk, director of the Global Access to Medicines program at Public Citizen, online at citizen.org. Peter May Barduk, thanks once again for joining us this week on Counterspin. So good to be with you. A new report from Public Citizen on big tech's political influence opens with some illustrative quotes, including one from former Trump official Mick Mulvaney about his time as a House representative for South Carolina. Quote, we had a hierarchy in my office in Congress. If you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I didn't talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. Close quote. It's nice to have it put so boldly, I suppose, but that is our understanding of how things often regrettably work. So what does it mean that Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, all wildly profitable enterprises that are being challenged on multiple fronts, from internal practices to societal impact, are showering money on Congress at startling levels? What are they looking to buy? Are they getting it? And how would we know? The report is called Big Tech, Big Cash, Washington's New Power Players. And we're joined now by its author, Public Citizen's Big Tech Accountability Advocate, Jane Chung. She joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome to Counterspin, Jane Chung. Thanks for having me. Well, as I say, although it stinks, no one is really shocked to know that money changes hands in D.C., that industry and lawmakers rub shoulders at parties, and then, huh, here's favorable legislation. They might be surprised at the sheer scale of the outlays you document and their increase. Give us a sense of the scale of the lobbying, campaign-contributing effort of these big tech corporations. Sure. Well, some comparisons I make in the report, I think, help illustrate the scale. When I was just coming into my 
political awareness, I'll say I learned that big oil and big tobacco for much of the 90s and the early 2000s got their way in legislation and regulation in Washington because they were pouring money into lobbying and campaign contributions. What I found throughout my research phase of this report is that Facebook and Amazon, which are now the two largest individual corporate spenders on lobbying in Washington, they now spend about twice as much as the companies Philip Morris and ExxonMobil. So that just gives you a sense of who today's big players are as compared to yesterday's when we know that big oil and big tobacco were really the biggest forces in Washington. Well, this is an update to a 2019 report, so you can also see the increase, right, in the spending from those actors. Yep, exactly. And it's not surprising, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction, there's a lot of regulatory and legislative challenge that is coming to the big tech companies. We've seen it last Congress. We'll see more this Congress. And if I had it my way, hopefully it it leads to some real action and change as well. Well, each of the players, of course, have their own set of issues and problems. Amazon workers, listeners know, are struggling to unionize right now after years of complaints about workplace conditions. They have got a friend in D.C. who's not new in town and who reflects another thing that the report spotlights, which is the revolving door. That plays a role with these tech companies as well, doesn't it? It plays a huge role. And to give you a little bit of a sense of what happens behind closed doors is I call myself an advocate. Really, I'm also a lobbyist, but we like to think of ourselves as lobbyists for the people. Right. And corporations have their own lobbyists. And so much of our job is calling and messaging staff members on the Hill to try and get meetings, to tell them about the issues that are important to us, and to, to try and move them toward what we think is the best solution. When it comes down to it, and you have an email in your inbox, or you have a missed call, and it's your buddy from 10 years ago when you work together on the Hill, you're much more likely to pick up than someone whose phone number you don't recognize. And so we really can't understate the importance of relationships in Washington and specifically how much the revolving door benefits corporate interests. Well, you know, it's it seems important to say lobbying is not inherently bad and receiving money isn't prima facie evidence of co-optation or corruption necessarily on the part of an official. In comments you made to the New Statesman, you were saying that sometimes the reason behind lobbying is self-evident, but at other times it's not clear. And part of what you're trying to do is not just say, hey, this money went from here to there, you know, voila, but try to figure out what is the interest that a company might have in particular legislation. And and something you said that I thought was very interesting is that sometimes a company could be lobbying for an issue that seems counterintuitive to its business interests, but there's other reasons that they're doing that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. You mentioned earlier 
many of your listeners probably know that Amazon is facing a lot of scrutiny for its labor practices as workers in Alabama are counting up votes this week to establish a union for the first time. It would be for the first time in Amazon's corporate history. Amazon has spent a lot of money lobbying and advertising about raising the federal minimum wage to $15. They've bought out full-page spreads in the New York Times. They've bought out every newsletter that any Washington politico subscribes to. And even in the lobbying filings, as I was going through them, they list a $15 minimum wage as an issue that they're lobbying for. Mm -hmm. You might think, well, that's objectively a good thing. And given Amazon's history of not exactly treating their warehouse workers well, this seems like they may have turned a new leaf. Why would they want to pay their workers more? Why would they do something that seems so counterintuitive to an employer's interest? And the reason in this case is because they want to overshadow all of the abuses that are happening in the workplace with this great PR slogan about how they were ahead of the curve on raising their minimum wage to $15. When the reality is, when they raised their warehouse workers' wages to $15, there are plenty of reports online around how this actually didn't raise the real wages for a lot of workers, and they cut back a lot of benefits and incentives at the same time. So the workers weren't experiencing actually any better material conditions as a result. Other reports online say that warehouse workers typically made much more than minimum wage, and so Amazon is putting downward pressure on the industry-wide wages for that type of work. And so we really can't take anything these companies say at face value. Another great recent example is a few of the companies, including Facebook and Google and Amazon, created a new group in Washington called the Chamber of Progress, where they're touting progressive slogans and interests like democracy reform and income equality. All the while, we know that this is really just a front group for advancing corporate interests in Washington. And so I think it's a sleight of hand that we have to pay attention to as we look at these companies. Chamber of Progress makes me want to puke. I'm just going to say that right now. Exactly. <laughs> um, when we're talking about Amazon's uh, new friend in, in D.C., that's a guy named Jay Carney, and I just wanted to point out that his official title appears to be Senior Vice President for Policy and Press, which I find very interesting as a as a way of thinking about image management as part of what is going on here. Well, one of the reasons that you and others track lobbying outlays and campaign contributions, even though that's not the only kind of influence peddling that's going on, but it's one of the pieces of information that you can get. And we should note that you're working with data from the Center for Responsive Politics. They're online at opensecrets.org. But other things happen that we just can't get a spotlight on, that we can't measure, right? So we're, you're not trying to say this is this is the whole of it. Yeah, this is just a piece of it. Sure. Yeah. So that's exactly right. The 
spending that I cover in this report is just a slice, and we don't know how big of a slice that is, of the full pie of spending that not only big tech but the corporate interests at large are spending in Washington. So just to give you a few examples, this report covers federal lobbying and campaign contributions. It does not cover state-level lobbying and campaign contributions as well as local which are much more difficult to quantify and track because there are different standards on a state-by-state or locality basis. This doesn't track super PACs and other intermediaries. We know that a lot of corporations will essentially launder money through a bunch of different names and organizations and super PACs and C3s and C4s to obscure the source of the funding and contribute to elections and candidates in that way. And then a whole new sort of frontier that we've recently discovered is advertisements, funding research, funding academics. We've seen recently that David Brooks of the New York Times op-ed column was publishing all sorts of great things about Facebook while not revealing that Facebook is one of the sources of funding for his new projects. So these are all ways that big tech kind of takes its tentacles into the Washington machine and are very, very, very difficult for us to track. Well, let me just ask, finally, I started out by saying no one's shocked, but just because we're jaded doesn't mean we accept it in a society with democratic aspirations, should we say, that it's just kind of money in, policy out. Briefly, unfortunately, what do you think about in terms of change, you know, in terms of the problems that this report outlines? What are the big things that could change and should change that would ameliorate anyway the problems you outline? One of the things we call for at the end of this report is for all of these tech companies, and, and we've made this call for corporate America at large to shut down their PACs, to end all super PAC contributions. And that's a small fix that the companies can do themselves. But in terms of the government, we really need the federal government to come in and make a stance and pass things like H.R. 1 or S. 1, the For the People Act, which has a lot of reforms in it to reduce the influence of corporate money in politics and increase transparency. These are the sort of changes we need to see to ensure that the democracy that we all participate in is reflective of what the people want and need rather than what Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple want and need. We've been speaking with Jane Chung, big tech accountability advocate for Public Citizen. Find the report Big Tech, Big Cash on the site citizen.org. Jane Chung, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.